0: Nuclear protest. What does it take to effectively protest against nuclear weapons? Sometimes, to bring attention to the world-ending power of these weapons of mass destruction, it requires breaking the law by putting one's physical self on the line. So how does an ethical anti-nuclear activist justify taking an illegal action to fight against a presumed-to-be-legal but horrifying weapon? by citing international law. So when one such protester, a dedicated, multi-decade, experienced nuclear campaigner, decides to participate in a nonviolent, peaceful action against nuclear weapons, citing international law, and he tells us...
1: The Nuremberg principles forbid the planning and preparation of those horrors, and that is what a nuclear weapon does. We say, and you've heard this many times yourself, I'm sure that it was the case in World War II that the victims were brought to the crematoria or the gas chambers. But with nuclear weapons, the gas chambers are brought to the people, the victims. And this is unlawful. This is prohibited by the laws that the United States wrote and enforced at Nuremberg. So here we are arguing this in a German court. And I have to tell you, the German judges did not want to hear this.
0: I'll bet they didn't. And that is just one of the international laws violated by the existence of nuclear weapons. So when John LaForge, co-director of Nukewatch, explains that he would rather go to prison for his peaceful protest than pay a modest fine, you know that he's pointing out the ultimate dangers posed by that awful, devastating seat that we all share. He's co director of Nuke Watch, and he will be going to German prison next week for taking part in two 2020 peace actions at the Buchel Air Force Base in Germany. He gives us a brilliant rundown on the many international treaty laws that should prohibit the very existence of nuclear weapons but don't, as well as a blow by blow of his actions and arrest, some of which prove to be quite humorous, despite their overall serious nature. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, Linda Pence-Gunter with the nuclear hot seat hot story, and more honest nuclear information than congressional Republicans can get their stuff together and agree upon. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January third, 2023, And here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Here in the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency has come down against Holtec, telling the company it is not allowed to dump contaminated wastewater from the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station into Cape Cod Bay. This is contrary to its permit, and the company must provide at least 90 days notification if it decides to pursue this discharge. The EPA's Deputy Director of Enforcement and Compliance, James Chow, made it clear that this should not be read in any way as allowing this discharge. In fact, the contrary was the case, saying compliance with this information request is mandatory and anyone who violates it is subject to criminal fines, imprisonment, or both. In North St. Louis... It's been learned that contaminated soil from the Jana Elementary School was used to level the football field at Hazleton Central High School. Jana Elementary was closed down in mid-October after a private company detected dangerous levels of radioactive waste, including lead 210, in soil around the building and inside it. Details of the case are available on Nuclear Hot Seat number 579 from November 29, 2022. Our interview with Michael Ketterer. The Bill Gates TerraPower nuclear demonstration project of small modular nuclear reactors in Wyoming has been delayed because the only fuel source for the project comes from Russia. The design uses high-assay, low-enriched uranium, or HALU fuel, and Russia's war on Ukraine has pushed back the project at least two years. Nuclear, never on time and never on budget. In Japan, Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, has denied allegations it plans to discharge radioactive wastewater from Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant meltdowns into the Pacific Ocean. Say what? Their argument hinges on the use of the word radioactive, which they deny. They claim that the water, purified with something called the ALPS system, reduces, but does not eliminate, the concentration of radioactive substances, excluding tritium which is radioactive. Then they say they will dilute tritium with a large volume of seawater. But to dilute something makes it weaker. And all they will be doing is spreading it further, dispersing it, not diluting it. Semantic manipulations in Japan. And for another example of that, here's... Nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. Nuclear. clear hot seed, not Japan's Environment Ministry has announced plans to demonstrate the reuse of so-called decontaminated soil from Fukushima at a Tokyo park. But besides the fact that local residents and city offices were reluctant to go ahead with the project and objected to it, that's not the biggest thing that's wrong with that sentence. It's the use of the word decontaminated as an adjective for the noun soil, decontaminated soil. Well, that in itself is a lie. Because the soil has not been decontaminated, it was removed from Fukushima as part of what is being called a decontamination project. The decontamination part was to scrape the radioactive soil up from where it was, and now they're trying to move it to Tokyo. But nothing has been done to remove the radiation from the soil because that can't be accomplished. All Japan is doing is kicking the contaminated soil down the road. By calling it decontaminated soil, everybody thinks, meh, must be safe. But it is contaminated soil that has been removed as part of a, maybe accurate, maybe not, but it's called a decontamination project. And what it's really doing is spreading the radioactivity to areas where perhaps it didn't exist before. I don't know whether this semantic deception plays out as clearly in Japanese as it does in English, but for now all I have available to me is the English, and so for that reason, I'm going to call Japan's government, TEPCO, and anyone else who is behind this spreading around of the radioactive soil, the contaminated soil, you are this week's Nuclear Hot
2: Seat,
0: none that's out of the week. In Ukraine, on December 30th, a backup power line to the Zaporizhia nuclear power station with six reactors went down again, and backup diesel-run energy generators had to be employed. In Scotland, small modular nuclear reactor plans are going to be blocked by the government, which says, we believe that significant growth in renewables, storage, hydrogen, and carbon capture provide the best pathways to net zero by 2045. And for more on small modular nuclear reactors and the propaganda push behind them, here's Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. We have just rung in
2: the new year, traditionally a time of festivity and just plain fun. While recognizing that it was in fact, nothing of the kind for many of us, it was irresistible to have a little fun with the organizers of the Reuters SMR and Advanced Reactor 2023 conference, an annual event taking place this year in May in Atlanta, Georgia. Over the preceding months, I had been the recipient of repeated email invitations to speak at this event. Due, the organizers wrote to quote, beyond nuclear's expertise and role in the space, unquote. This naturally got me to wondering whether analytics just threw up every company name with nuclear in it, or whether the organizers had simply not bothered to look at our website and had missed the beyond bit, or whether they actually wanted us to deliver the contrary point of view to an audience packed with SMR-hungry industry wolves. So finally, after about the fourth such exhortation to share our so-called expertise, I wrote back. After first speculating on the motivation for this invitation and concluding that malice aforethought was likely not one of them, I went on. If I were to speak at your event, I would need to remind your audience that, far from making a contribution to the mitigation of our ever worsening climate crisis, they are, by pursuing a futile chimera like the small modular reactor, contributing to its exacerbation by insisting that copious amounts of money, mostly taxpayers, and precious time that we don't have, at least a decade, but likely longer, are squandered on SMRs in a vain attempt to quote, rapidly propel SMR commercialization forward, unquote, an outcome that absent a magic wand is unlikely, you are all of you complicit in the devastation that the climate crisis will inflict on large parts of the world, including our own, and indeed already is. I cannot see how this choice can make any of you content, especially if you have children or grandchildren to whom you must explain that you chose to serve a master of elusive profit in the pursuit of an unreliable and dangerous technology rather than work to ensure at least a somewhat livable future for them, late though it is to achieve this. SMRs constitute a technology that is unneeded, untested and not here, that will cost far more per megawatt hour of electricity generated than any other energy form that will never become operational in enough time or numbers, if at all, even if production were attempted. And will inevitably, given the intended export market, deliver into the hands of non-nuclear weapon nations, the technology, material and know how to make them. Doubtless, you know perfectly well that small modular reactors will never, as you wrote, unleash a new era for carbon free power. There is no carbon-free answer other than energy efficiency and conservation. But renewables beat nuclear reactors on the low carbon front, small or otherwise, by a mile. And of course you will need hundreds of SMRs. I urge you then to think about this through a greater moral lens. If Reuters must lavish dollars and carbon footprints on such enterprises, this should at least be in the interest of climate progress and humanity. We must focus especially on those in the global south are likely to suffer the worst consequences of our failures and indeed are already doing so. The false promise of small modular reactors has no contribution to make to them other than futile delay in bringing the much needed energy access or, if ever realized, a further burden on the economy and a lethal legacy of radioactive waste. If you are content for me to deliver such a presentation at your event, then we will certainly consider your invitation has been no answer yet, and likely won't be, but it was worth a try. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting
0: for Nuclear Hot Seat, and that's this week's hot story. But other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, what did you think of the play? On the website, we will provide links to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, Nuclear Year in Review, A Global Nuclear Order in Shambles, and the article, Are the Bombs Back in Town?, Is the U.S. about to station nuclear weapons in Britain again, or are they already here? This point will be elaborated upon in this week's featured interview, which you will hear in just a moment. But first, here we go again. Another year, another set of nuclear nightmares, sometimes the same ones, and it's a safe bet that those in power seem more interested in nuclear posturing than the long-term survival of people and the planet which today's interviewee will explain in detail. I can say this to you because I know that you care about getting honest, verifiable nuclear news. Otherwise, why would you be listening to this show? That is what we set out to provide at Nuclear Hot Seat every week. Verifiable nuclear information that's been sourced, checked, footnoted, and vetted. We present interviews with people who are genuine experts on various aspects of the nuclear industry and its impact on life, health, and our shared genetic future. People on the front line of the struggle for nuclear sanity. How do we do it? With your support. We cannot do it alone. Because without you, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue meeting our monthly expenses. So if you're grateful for the information you get from this show... Now would be a perfect time to start the show right and support us with a donation. We make it easy. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the red Donate button, click on it, and follow the prompts. That's where you can send a one-time donation of any size, and we mean it any size. Or, if you want to be a sustainer, set up an automatic recurring donation of any size. Just $5 a month from you will make a big difference. And that's the same as you'd spend here in the U.S. on a cup of coffee and a decent tip. And a Nuclear Hot Seat is a nonprofit, so whatever you donate is tax-deductible. Do what you can, and we'll keep doing what we can to search out and share information that the nuclear industry would rather you not know. Whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful. Now here's this week's featured interview. It takes courage and fortitude to stand up for one's beliefs, especially in the fact of international blind spots that support opposition to your position. That's what anyone who opposes nuclear weapons, reactors, uranium mining, and any and all aspects of the nuclear industry are up against. That's what makes this week's story, and our guest, so compelling. John LaForge is co-director of NukeWatch, a Wisconsin-based environmental and peace action group dedicated to the abolition of nuclear power, weapons, and continued radioactive waste production. Nuke Watch brings critical attention to the locations, movements, dangers, and the politics of nuclear weapons and dangerous wastes. He has compelling information on international treaty laws as they relate to nuclear weapons. And much of it is information that I have never before heard in my 11 and a half years of producing nuclear hot seat. That's why I'm so delighted to share this interview and his knowledge with you. I spoke with John LaForge, who is currently in Germany, on Monday, January 2, 2023. This was just eight days before he is scheduled to report to a German prison to serve a term for his peaceful nonviolent protests against U.S. nuclear weapons stockpiled and able to be deployed from a German airbase. John LaForge, it's so great and such a privilege to have you with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat this week.
1: Thanks, Libby. Nice to be here.
0: I initially contacted you about a story regarding Japan, but then circumstances changed. And you are currently facing a prison sentence that's set to begin in just over one week from the time that we are talking. And this is for two protests that you did against nuclear weapons. First, let's hear a little bit about your background. How long have you been working to oppose nuclear weapons? And what is your position with Nuke Watch?
1: Uh, Most of my adult life, I've focused uh, my working life or political life on opposition to nuclear weapons and uh, the war system. I've worked full time for Nuke Watch in Wisconsin since 1992, starting earlier part time in 1988. So, for more than 30 years, a staff person at Nuke Watch, which focuses on nuclear weapons, nuclear reactors, radiation, and nonviolent resistance to militarism.
0: You are facing a possible Prison sentence. It looks like an inevitable one at this point in Germany. Why Germany? Nukewatch is based in Wisconsin, isn't it?
1: Yes, it sure is. But part of our work is to oppose nuclear weapons deployment wherever it happens to be. In fact, the United States is the only country in the world today that stations or deploys its nuclear weapons in other countries. The United States Air Force has what they call B-61 old-fashioned B-61 gravity bombs in five NATO European countries or partners, Belgium, the Netherlands, Italy, Turkey, and here in Germany. During the Cold War, there were up to 7,000 U.S. nuclear weapons stationed across Europe. Uh, This number has been greatly reduced since the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. And now these six bases, two in Italy and one each in the four other NATO partners, have about 20 of these B61 gravity bombs apiece, each base. And so there are between 120 and 150 of these good old B61s uh, spread across Europe, pointing right up the nose of the Russian Federation. Obviously, we think it's provocative, unnecessary destabilizing and terrorizing to uh, deploy these nuclear weapons in Europe and anywhere in the United States, for that matter. So uh, the German peace movement, the European peace movement, and the U.S. anti-nuclear movement has been working for decades to withdraw finally all the nuclear weapons that the U.S. has in Europe.
0: So while Germany is not generally considered to be a nuclear country and has not developed any weapons of its own, there are weapons in Germany. Where are they and what is their status? Are they on alert? Are they aimed? Are they ready to go?
1: Yeah, there are these gravity bombs at the Buschel Air Force Base, which is in a little tiny, outside a little tiny village of Buschel, Germany, about 80 kilometers south of Cologne. They are right now kept in bunkers underground, in these heavily fortified earthen bunkers, where the bombs are kept themselves, as well as the uh, tornado fighter jets, all can be slid inside of these heavy earthen bunkers. I don't believe you could consider these weapons to be on alert status, as you said. In fact, it takes many, many hours to make them available to these tornado jet pilots. They are in these little elevator shafts on these holders and then lowered below the bottom of the shelter. They're called protected aircraft shelters. It has a concrete slab floor. Well, into this floor, this little elevator device holds these hydrogen bombs underground inside the shelter. This has to be elevated then. The bombs have to be moved out and then fastened under the wings of the tornado fighter jets before they could be used in an attack. Interestingly, um, the U.S. Air Force has a nuclear weapons school where the pilots learn how to do this and learn even how to follow directions and pick targets where these bombs are going to be dropped. And these schools are established in six or seven states in the united states and in one place outside the united states that's the uh, Ramstein air force base one of the largest u.s air force bases outside of the country uh, in Ramstein, germany where they have one of these air force nuclear weapons schools to train the pilots to use these terrifying hydrogen bombs there's two varieties now deployed across europe as pointed out in these five countries The B-61-3, which is a 170 kiloton bomb, 11 times the force of the Hiroshima bomb, and the B-61-4, which is a 50 kiloton hydrogen bomb, merely 3.3 times the size of the Hiroshima bomb. And yet these things are called tactical or low-yield nuclear weapons, in spite of the fact that they're many times the force of the Hiroshima bomb that killed 140,000 people at one go. So these are very, very destabilizing and threatening devices. They don't need to be in Germany anymore. They're used for political purposes principally. And in fact, keeping them in other states is an open flagrant violation of treaty law to which the United States is a party. And that's why we were able to defend ourselves at trial. That's why we were justified in going into this base and trying to interfere with the threatened use of these things. Because the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which was ratified by the United States in 1970, uh, says in Article 1, no state party to this treaty will transfer its nuclear weapons to another party. And Article 2 says no state party to the treaty will receive nuclear weapons from another party to the treaty. These are laws that are binding on both Germany and the United States
0: why did you decide to become involved in these protests in germany
1: a couple of reasons like i said the u.s is the only country to do this with its nuclear weapons so we're sort of flagrant blatant outrageous international actors in this regard and we wanted to bring attention to it because not many north american readers or listeners know that the u.s has nuclear weapons deployed in other countries nuke watch has focused A lot of attention on the land-based missiles. The Minuteman III ICBMs published two books on them. Uh, It's called Nuclear Heartland. And we did a lot of reporting on the transportation of nuclear weapons on trains and trucks around the United States back in the 1980s. We focused a lot of attention on U.S. nuclear weapons, and this is just another aspect. In 1999, now it's almost 24 years ago, I learned of a Peace march that was happening in Europe, from The Hague, the World Court in The Hague, down to Brussels and NATO headquarters. Now, The Hague had just finished International Conference on Nuclear Disarmament, and these activists, about 250 people, marched for three weeks to Brussels and to protest at the NATO headquarters there. And uh, way back then, I decided, oh, that's a march for me. We've been doing a lot of marching in Wisconsin and Minnesota. So I thought, here's something uh, I can learn from and that really opened my eyes to the European peace movement and to the problem of U.S. weapons in Europe. That's part of the reason at the time I met my future wife on that march. And about three years ago, we were married here in Germany. So I've got uh, vested interests in campaigning here, personal as well as political.
0: Were there German groups involved with this? And were they perhaps the organizers of this protest that you joined? Or did nuke watch and you take some leadership in actually putting the protest together
1: oh yes this is fundamentally a a german-wide campaign there's a group here with the oldest peace group in germany the acronym is dfgvk a group that started before world war one has 70 uh, organizations and groups in its coalition and uh, it's been working for the uh, removal of the u.s nuclear weapons ever since the 80s when at that time The Carter and Reagan administrations introduced cruise and Pershing missiles into Western Europe. Some of your elderly listeners will remember that controversy because that was a very hot button back then. Hundreds of thousands of Europeans marched in cities across Europe to uh, get rid of the Pershing missiles and the cruise missiles, and they were successful. And so ever since that time, there's been this remnant of U.S. nuclear weapons and uh, a campaign campaign within the German peace movement to get rid of it. On a more local basis, a smaller group, GAAA, the acronym means the Nonviolent Action for Abolition of Nuclear Weapons. A local group has been sponsoring a peace camp next to the air base for many years, since about 2003, I believe, for one or two weeks in the summertime where activists from around the country come and focus attention on the base. And in 2017, Five years ago now, uh, Nuke Watch began coordinating with GAAA to bring a delegation of U.S. peace activists to this peace camp. And for five years in a row, uh, Nuke Watch helped with GAAA, the local group, to uh, bring a delegation of 10 or 12 North American peace activists to the peace camp where we conducted some of these protests that resulted in our arrest and trials.
0: So let's get to the actual protests that you were involved in. What did they consist of? What did you do and how was it met?
1: Well, they were um, a series. 2017, uh, the first year we were there, a group of five of us did a nighttime action that involved these little clippers, wire clippers, to snip the fence in the dark and then carry on into the base to try to occupy one of these Protected Aircraft Shelters, we call them bunkers in this country, Our group and consisted of four North Americans and one German citizen, and that night we did clip through five fences and we were walking on this base uninterrupted in the dark for an hour before we finally scramble up on top of the bunker, and we were there for a good hour and realized that uh, they don't know that we're here, and we were quite surprised by that, of course, thought, well, we're not going to camp here all night. So let's go down to the main gate, or the not the gate, the main door to this bunker, which is a giant steel apparatus, and uh, paint a symbol on it or a sign or a message, and then maybe they'll be alerted. I think two of us, Steve Baggerly of Carolina and myself, uh, went down and we uh, painted a sign, drew a sign, uh, wrote a message on the door. Then we went back up on the bunker. And there were uh, motion detector cameras that spotted us, so the guards did come running. And this was very funny uh, to us. In spite of the fact that this is a nuclear weapons base, we couldn't help but be amused. These soldiers came barreling out of their personnel carriers and were scrambling around on the ground, looking on the ground for us. And we were on top of the bunker, looking down like a Monty Python sketch, going, hmm, they don't have any idea where we are. And so we finally held up our large banner, and they spotted us, and that was that. Then they escorted us out to the main gate, and we waited there for a long time because they had called the base commander, a guy named Colonel Schlemmer, a very nice person, who was woken out of bed to come and scold us and warn us. He said something rather amusing that stays with us all these years later. He said, Now, what you did was very dangerous, and it is not supposed to be fun. I mean, we were obviously pleased with ourselves, and he didn't like that. Now, in that case... None of the U.S. Americans were charged with trespass, only the German citizen, our friend Gerd Bunsky, who's a music composer and a music teacher here. And so uh, I believe it was the year or two later, he was charged and put on trial. So we made a protest at the prosecutor's office complaining about selective prosecution.
0: He was prosecuted not immediately after the action, but a few years after for that action?
1: One year later, the wheels of justice here are very, very slow, just as in the U.S. It took them at least a year to get around to his trial. And the same with our subsequent protests, too. As I said, the four Americans weren't charged in that case. But in 2018, the following year, we had another peace camp outside the gates that involved a delegation of 10 peace activists from the United States.
0: That's in 2018?
1: Yeah. And that was a sizable camp. There were... Activists from all over Europe that came that year. It was a lot of fun to be there. We did uh, broad daylight actions that year. The most surprising one was a Sunday, uh, July 15th, 11 in the morning, in broad daylight, 18 of us got into the base by clipping through the fence in five different places. Some of the small groups uh, did manage to get on top of uh, these protected aircraft shelters, or one of them, and others uh, of us proceeded into the base to try to find someone to deliver our uh, indictment to them, Uh, we had prepared a legal indictment against personnel, especially managers and operators of the base, for allegedly violating uh, international treaty laws that forbid the planning and preparation of mass destruction. Treaties that the U.S. and Germany are both a party to. Uh, We were able to deliver that statement to some guards. They took us into custody, took our names and addresses and whatnot, and then released us. So the uh, prosecution that happened in 2020 was partly that action, and almost all 18 of those people have now been prosecuted by the German government here for that uh, rather embarrassing action, embarrassing for the Air Force, where so many of us got in there. The action got some press because so many of us got in that day. In Berlin, in the parliament, there was one Green Party parliamentarian who complained about the lax security at the uh, Air Force there. And she said, what is the Bushel Air Force Base? Is it an amusement park? And that's not exactly the message we wanted to send, that there's lax security at these places. But it is a necessary uh, message to get out there, as well as the fact that nuclear weapons are stationed there, unbeknownst to most people.
0: With all of these actions going on in connection with the peace camp, Which one or which ones were you actually prosecuted for?
1: For two that happened in 2018. One on July 15th, a date we chose because of the first testing of the atomic bomb in Alamogordo, Texas in 1945. It's also the anniversary of the Church Rock, New Mexico uranium mine spill in 1979. So we focus on that day every year for those reasons. The second action that year that I joined was with Susan Crane, the California plushers activist who works at the Redwood City Catholic worker there serving the homeless population. She and I clipped the fence again on August 6th, the anniversary of Hiroshima, and walked into the base through the wooded area and were able to climb on top again of a protected aircraft shelter, again, undetected. With no uh, response from the Air Force, we fell asleep on top. It was a hot summer day. We were exhausted, and uh, we took a nap on top of the shelter there. We took some photos. We decided after an hour up there to uh, go inspect another aircraft shelter. At that time, we were detected and seen and taken in to uh, be identified. So it's those two accidents, August 6th and July 15th of 2018. Susan Crane, myself... And the 18 others, uh, 17 others in July prosecuted in the German courts.
0: Were you immediately taken into custody or was it a matter of registering who you were and they came for you later with the notification of being brought to trial?
1: We were initially just taken into custody and identified and confirmed who we were and released us. The prosecution takes, took much, much longer than that. It was actually two years later when the trials began The first case wouldn't have happened at all, except for a very funny situation. Marian Kuker and I, she's the peace activist from Hamburg here who uh, helped coordinate these peace camps for many years. We had decided to get married back in 2020 and we, to do so, had to go to the U.S. consulate in Cologne of all places. There's only one consulate in the country of Germany that'll give you the proper form For a U.S. citizen to marry a German citizen. So we drove over to Cologne to get the paperwork. And while we were parked outside, we were early for the appointment. And we were early enough that we parked outside and drew attention to ourselves because we have this campaign card with a big sticker that says, Abolish Nuclear Weapons, Bussle Air Base is a Crime Scene. So because of the stickers, the police checked us out and they knocked on the door and they tried to uh, interfere with our appointment. But we made it clear that this is very important. We got to get this piece of paper and blah, blah, blah. And so they did allow us to meet the appointment. And on the way out, they handed us these papers. They handed me the papers that were the formal charging papers. The reason they said they hadn't already been delivered to me is they didn't know where I lived, which of course is preposterous since they had gotten all that information from us the day of the action. That's when the paper and the court system really started coming after me in particular, although it had been prosecuting the German and Dutch citizens already that were part of the action.
0: We will hear more from John LaForge of Nuke Watch, including his jaw-dropping rundown on existing international laws that prohibit nuclear weapons. But I wanted to take this moment to remind you that Nuclear Hot Seat depends on your donations to help us keep this show in production. So help us keep going, would you? Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com Click on the red donate button, follow the prompts, and know that no amount is too small or too large, and we truly appreciate your support. Now, back to our January 2nd, 2023 interview with John LaForge of Nuke Watch. Let's talk about the trial and the case that you put together as the justification for having taken this action in the first place. What did that consist of? Who were the people and the laws that you were citing and what happened?
1: It's such a fantastic system to me. I, I think that these international treaties, to my way of thinking, they hold the world together. From In my mind, they keep us from descending into absolute barbarism. I mean, the, the, the treaty laws that have been agreed do place absolute limits on what states can do in war and what they can do in preparations for war. And that's what we explained. Uh, Principally, it comes down to about six different treaties. The uh, Hague Regulations or Conventions of 1909, and there was a reiteration of them again later, forbid the use of poison or any poison weapons in warfare. So this regulation applies to nuclear weapons, even though in 1909 there was no such thing. But nuclear weapons produce poison when they detonate, and those poisons are long lasting. And so we would argue that you can't use a nuclear weapon without violating the Hague regulations. Secondly, the Geneva Conventions in 1925, following the terrible use of gas in World War I, forbid gas weapons and forbid chemical weapons that come in the form of gas. Again, the detonation of nuclear weapons produces poisonous gas. And so therefore, I would argue that the Geneva Conventions forbid the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, There's other parts of the Geneva Conventions that also apply to our case. That is the deliberate attacks on civilians or civilian objects is prohibited. Of course, nuclear weapons can't be used without attacking civilians and civilian objects because their explosive power is so gigantic or gargantuan, uncontrollable, and unlimited. Thirdly, There is a a protocol additional to the Geneva Conventions of 1977 that forbid long-term permanent or long-term and detrimental. It's the environmental protocol to the Geneva Convention that forbids long-term damage to the environment. So, of course, this applies to the effects of nuclear weapons as well. Now we have, both in Germany and in the United States, the elevation of treaty law to the status of the supreme law of the land. The U.S. Constitution says treaties are the supreme law. The German basic law, which is the equivalent of the Constitution, also has Article 25, which says treaty laws are supreme, superior to the regular federal and state statutes of Germany. This is very important for the court system to recognize that when we argue these things, We're not just shooting our mouths off. The courts themselves are supposed to be in a position to enforce international treaties, which are recognized as supreme law in their court system. Finally, and this was deeply ironic to argue this in a German court, but the Nuremberg Principles, the Nuremberg Principles, the Charter, and the Nuremberg Tribunal were established after World War II. And they fundamentally changed the meaning and the import of treaties that limit warfare. This is because they didn't simply forbid mass destruction that Geneva Conventions already forbid, but they've changed treaty law by prohibiting the planning and preparation of mass destruction. Now, to our lights, deterrence, nuclear deterrence, is exactly that. The threatened use of nuclear weapons, the planning and preparation of nuclear attacks that goes on every single day in the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force train and prepare for nuclear war on a regular basis. But the Nuremberg principles forbid, in a quote here, the planning and preparation of wars that would violate international treaties, laws, or prohibitions. So that's a direct reference to the Geneva Conventions, the Hague Regulations, those prior laws. That forbids certain kinds of warfare, principally indiscriminate attacks or attacks that do long-term damage to the environment. So the Nuremberg principles and the Nuremberg Charter, they were established in the city of Nuremberg here following the horrors of World War II. And so to prevent a repetition of those horrors. The Nuremberg principles forbid the planning and preparation of those horrors, and that is what a nuclear weapon does. We say, and you've heard this many times yourself, I'm sure, that it was the case in World War II that the victims were brought to the crematoria or the gas chambers. But with nuclear weapons, the gas chambers are brought to the people, the victims, and this is un lawful. This is prohibited by the laws that the United States wrote and enforced at Nuremberg. So here we are arguing this in a German court. And I have to tell you, the German judges did not want to hear this.
0: So you had this information about all the different international treaty law that should take precedence over any court case against mere activists who with Clippers managed to get in and stand on top of some bunkers on an Air Force base in Germany. I assume you had experts in international law who were prepared to give testimony on your behalf. What happened in the courtroom when this information was brought up?
1: You're absolutely right. We had several international experts, principally uh, Francis Boyle, who teaches international law at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. He is our principal expert and lifelong mentor on this subject who was willing to testify um, online from Illinois. And we lined it all up in advance, as well as a, a German international law expert who came to the courthouse in person to testify if he were to be allowed. But again, at the trial court level in Colcombe District Court and at the appeals court level at Koblenz Regional Court, the judges refused to hear any testimony from the expert witnesses, which would have validated and verified what we were saying. They made the rather absurd claim that, oh, these are U.S. expert witnesses. They don't know German law. Of course, that's preposterous because we're talking about international law, which applies to both states. And we had a German expert as well who very well knows German law. They simply didn't want to let any air into this vacuum they've created around the nuclear weapons system, a vacuum that prevents any analysis at this level. In fact, the judge said, look, in their written response, they dismissed us at the court level, but then they have to provide a written decision later on. And in those written decisions from both of those courts, they said the German government and the U.S. government have agreed to this nuclear sharing. That's what it's formally called, like we're having a picnic or a potluck. They've agreed to nuclear sharing It's been ages since they made this agreement, so therefore it's legitimate. And they paid no attention to our legal argument at all. We were saying that our action by going in there was an act of crime prevention. And crime prevention is a legitimate affirmative defense in just about every civilized court system in the world. You know, you can prevent harm to another person. You can interfere with uh, threats against other people. You can use self-defense to protect yourself in the event of a illegitimate threat. And yet this particular line of defense was rejected by the courts, just as it is in the United States in most cases.
0: In the United States, there have been trials of anti-nuclear activists, such as Sister Megan Rice, who did a peaceful break-in at the Y-12 Fort Knox of Uranium in Tennessee. And more recently, Kings Bay Plowshare 7, who performed a peace protest similar to the one that you did in Germany at the nuclear submarine base in Kings Bay, Georgia. And it seems to be a playbook because in all the trials connected with these events, any kind of larger context, international treaty law was prohibited from being part of the testimony. It was specifically prohibited so that there was no sense to the jury that there was a justification for these break-ins happening. This seems to be the playbook. I'm wondering if there might be any way around it should this come up in the future, or is it the grounds for an appeal that might be successful?
1: Yeah, I do hope it's the grounds for a successful appeal. I don't think there's much of a chance of breaking through at these trial courts because they've got these higher court Decisions that allow them to exclude the evidence. But we have appealed. My case is on appeal to the constitutional court right now. That's the equivalent of US Supreme Court. And my wife, Marion, has taken a case of her own and a co-defendant all the way to the constitutional court as well, and then rejected her appeal without any comment, even. And so, based on that, she has appealed to the European Court of Human Rights, which is in Strasbourg, France. Now, if you're um, part of the European Union and you believe that your trials were and appeals were ruled unfairly, then you can make an appeal to this European court. And they have a rather stringent set of hoops to jump through before they'll take a case. You have to really establish quite clearly that you were given an unfair trial or that the appeals process was unfairly uh, dismissive. Her case is still pending. The European court has yet to issue a decision. I believe that uh, when the German Supreme Court, the constitutional court rules against me in my case, that I too will appeal to Strasbourg to see if those judges there would like to make a statement against U.S. nuclear proliferation in Europe. You know, here's a perfect opportunity for the European Court of Human Rights to de-escalate this war in Ukraine by ruling that the U.S. nuclear weapons here are provocative, destabilizing and unlawfully deployed that would be a fantastic message they could send and help uh, diffuse the crisis a little
0: the court gave you the option of paying a fine rather than do 50 days 50 days in prison which is what you are up against why did you opt to not pay the fine and do prison time instead
1: it's rather a difficult decision to make because paying such a fine is so relatively easy in this case because of my privileged position in the culture and because a lot of people support Nuke Watch and could raise the money in the blink of an eye.
0: How much would that money have been?
1: $619. It started out heavier. It was 1500 But the appeals court did agree that it should be lowered, and they lowered it to 600 euros. It's about 620 US dollars. But my position is that paying any kind of a fine in this case is an admission of wrongdoing. It's something that I cannot do. I don't believe for one minute that interfering with the planned use of nuclear weapons was wrong. I don't think anybody could convince me that it was. Least of all, a court system that refuses to consider international treaties. Fine paying is a way for privileged people to get out of the consequences of their actions in a way that underprivileged, the poor and the destitute are unable to. You know, for a fact, there are people waiting, awaiting trial even who can't afford to pay the bail. Across the United States, thousands and thousands of people kept in jail for a mere bail money. And so in spite of my privileged position here in this case, I believe it's sympathetic or some sort of solidarity to act in this way and refuse to pay. Those are the two principal reasons
0: we are talking on January 2nd of 2023, and your prison sentence should it go through as scheduled will start in eight days on January 10th, you will be imprisoned until March 1st of 2023. Will it be possible for you to do any kind of anti nuclear work or have ongoing contact with the outside world while you're in prison? Or is this more of a real lockdown in a punitive situation?
1: That's a great question. I think the first week there's a COVID quarantine of any new inmates, I believe. After that, I'll be able to use the telephone, read and write letters. I believe I'll be able to have books sent from the publisher. So I can continue with my regular work in this rather strange environment. There has to be some work performed by the inmates. I'm not sure what job I'll be assigned to, but that will take up part of the day as well.
0: Do you have any specific plans for what you're going to do once you leave, which will be on March 1st, 2023?
1: Well, I think uh, initially it'll be a a little bit of a recovery period of time, Uh, my Late friend Carl Cabot said you need to spend at least half the time on the outside that you spend inside recovering from the experience and integrating it into your consciousness in a sort of a relaxed way. I don't know if that's going to be so possible for me because there'll be a lot of work to do, but I hope to continue writing on the subject and uh, let people know how it was and how I feel uh, that this is an important way to bring attention to a situation that uh, doesn't get enough of it.
0: Is there still time for those of us listening to this interview to raise a voice in support of you either before, which is going to be difficult because the time is so short, or during the time that you are in prison? That would be helpful.
1: Oh, thank you. I think it's not just the U.S. public who's unaware of these U.S. nuclear weapons that are so-called forward deployed so close to Russia, but people in Congress as well. The people paying the bills or assigning the contracts that see these things deployed here. In fact, Congress is moving ahead in positively the wrong direction with a B6112, uh, the newest version, the 12th version of this B61 bomb that's been around since the 60s. And they intend to replace the current B61s now in Germany, Italy, Belgium, the Netherlands with this new version beginning this month. There were some reports that are unverified that the new B6112 has already been delivered to Italy. Uh, that hasn't been really confirmed one way or another yet. So these things could be protested by your listeners and help who can write to Congress, write to their representatives, call them, ask them if they know about these new B61s that are being forward deployed next to former Soviet Union, now the Russian Federation, and if they know that over $10 billion has been spent to build this brand new nuclear weapon, which is supposedly more accurate than the currently deployed ones, more dangerous, therefore, because uh, they think it's more usable as a more accurate device. Beyond that, if your congressional reps are lost causes like is often the case in Wisconsin, where I'm from, find your local peace group and join up and volunteer and see if you can join a march against the continuation of this crazy budgetary process that sends all the money to the military and cuts the budgets for the school system and school loans and health care.
0: One of the things that those of us who oppose nuclear talk about a lot is the need to get a younger generation involved in the work so that it does get to be carried on. These are generations, I think it's more than one at this point, that were not raised as we were during the Cold War with the constant awareness of nuclear weapons, though I think Russia's war on Ukraine has definitely raised the profile of nukes and the awareness of it. What do you think and or feel those who oppose nuclear need to do to up our game, attract new activists? and make the protests and the arguments against nuclear weaponry more visible to the larger public.
1: The um, gray haired uh, anti nuclear movement needs to participate in what the young people are up to. We need to join these climate actions because that's where the action is right now.
0: Do you have any last thoughts that you haven't been able to cover that you would like to get to now? John, the work you have been doing is extraordinary. It's crucial to our understanding your tenaciousness and your courage and going, well, you know, I could pay $600, but let's take the prison time and not take advantage of privilege and be there as a symbol, a flashpoint, a place where activists around the world can focus on what has just taken place and hopefully use it to spread the word and then pave the way for you to move forward after these 50 days are over. In all of that, John, your work has been extraordinary, important, potentially life-changing for everyone on the planet. And for all of that, for all you do, and for all you will continue to do, I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Thank you very much, Libby. I really appreciate being invited on your show. I love your show.
0: That was John LaForge, co-director of Nuke Watch. We will have links up on our website to Nuke Watch, John's article on why he will not pay the fine and prefers to go to jail, as well as the book he mentioned, Nuclear Hotland. You'll find it all on NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode number 602. This has been Nuclear Hotseat for Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, nukewatchinfo.org, riverfronttimes.com, plymouthcountyobserver.substack.com, climatecrops.com, cnbc.com, grandcanyontrust.org, ODT.CO.NZ, Yahoo.com, Kyoto News, NHK.OR.JP, Asahi.com, CNIC.JP, IAEA.org, GG.com, Nation.CYMRU, NewCivilEngineer.com, TheBulletin.org, and the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks to Linda Penn gunter of Beyond Nuclear for the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. If you would like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, we make it easy. On the website, nuclearhotseat.com, scroll down for that yellow box. Just put in your first name and an email address and every week you will get one, just one, email with the link and a short description of the show's content. And if you're a regular consumer of podcast information, you can also sign up for the show on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Now, this show has a bit of participatory democracy involved with it. What does that mean? You're on the front lines of whatever nuclear story is in your own backyard. So if you have got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, we need that information and you can get it to me in an email sent to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can, go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate. We really need your help to keep going. And anything you do, anything at all, we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi and Hardistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as you cite the program, the website, and eh, throw in the names of the guests and me if you like. Let's keep this good information flowing. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat and laureate of the 2022 Nuclear Free Future Award for Education, reminding you, Nuclear war cannot be won and should never be fought. And that is a quote From former President Ronald Reagan. There you have it. You have just had your nuclear wake up call. So, whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What
2: are those people thinking?